0: It's hard to believe that 2021 is coming to a close. In looking back on this year, the country's experienced quite a bit of change. A new presidential administration, economic and health shifts in dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic and, and new COVID variants, milestones in space travel and new commercial space travel, social unrest and different elements of social engagement, and just the dynamics of the population shifts that have changed congressional representation and the makeup of our country. And as the C-SPAN networks delivered these programs covering these historic events and milestones that occurred across the country and internationally, our education team captured these events by creating free educational resources for teachers to use with their students. I'm Zach, and I'm joined by my colleagues Craig and Pam our team has been reflecting on the newest content that we created this past year. And in this episode, we'll highlight some of our most popular resources and, to be honest, some of our personal favorite resources, too. So stay tuned. We'll be right back.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Shopify. Welcome back. For everyone listening, Craig, Zach, and I had lots of fun reviewing our most popular resources that were created this year. There were a variety of topics that were represented among the top tier. But the one that stood out to me and the one that I want to share in this episode was a lesson we created on Emmett Till.
2: So why did you pick this particular lesson, Pam?
1: You know, the debate over civil rights continues to evolve throughout the country. Movements are growing milestones are being achieved, but there's still conflict surrounding this issue. You know, we see that in communities across the country, it's discussed across the street in Congress here in DC, and in the classroom as well, so the conversation is ongoing. And there are many leaders of the civil rights movement that students can learn about, who they were, what they did, or the impact they had. But for me, the story of Emmett Till is one that can resonate with students because he was a young man who left Chicago to visit his family in Mississippi for a break before the start of the school year. But what happened to him during his time there galvanized the civil rights movement.
0: You know, when I was in school, I never actually learned about the story of Emmett Till, uh, which leads me to this question, Pam and and Craig. Have you guys ever visited the Emmett Till exhibit at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of African American History and Culture?
3: Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, and... I'll say that when I visited the museum, I was struck by the volume of visitors of all ages, and also the somber, respectful feeling that blanketed the exhibits. I actually left there wondering, how many people know the Emmett Till story? How many students learn about this story? And it's why I wanted to share this lesson we created called the Emmett Till story. So we aggregated a couple of clips to include, and one of them is Reverend Wheeler Parker, Emmett's cousin, who was with him on the day they went into the town of Money, Mississippi, in August 1955, let's listen to him talk about his experience on that day.
4: So I was in the store with Emmett. Nothing happened. Absolutely nothing. Everything went smooth. No problems. I did leave him in the store. Shortly, I don't know a minute or so. Simeon came in right behind me. Uh, Simeon, my youngest uncle, who we went to visit. He was 12. Emmett, 14. I was 16. He's in with them. absolutely nothing happened. They came out of the store. Simon said nothing happened while he was there. Um, they came out of the store, and of course, Emmy was a prankster. He stuttered not sometimes, but all the time. And he loved to make people laugh. He loved, he used to pay people to pay him jokes. She came out of the store, and he gave a woof or two. Some people think that he know he whistled. And we could have fainted. No one said, let's go. We just, we that knew the South, knew he violated one of the Southern Mooray, we just headed for the car. Because we knew that it could be real serious trouble behind that. And of course, it's dust dark by now, and we're going down this gravel road called Dark Fear Road. Dust is flying everywhere, and there's a car behind us. And we said, man, they're after us, they're after us. It's, like some out of the movies, you know, my uncle sped up driving. He was 16 by eight. Us in the car. Stopped and through the cotton field. We went uncle Simeon. I don't know who he, what he was thinking. He hid in the car supposedly. Mm-hmm. So he just laid down. Uncle Simeon's always cool. You know, he had his own ideas. The car went right by, So that would not happen." we regrouped in the girl named Ruth who's still there. She's just as scared today. She was then, I think. But you had to live in those kind of conditions and how it impacts you and how it affects you. When you're raised in that kind of situation, it does a lot to you. It affects your behavior, it affects your mind. So she said, this is not over. You guys are going to hear more about this.
1: He goes on to describe what happened that evening when Emmett was taken from their home which was the last time he saw him and I think this is a powerful primary source for students to hear from directly
2: yeah, from my own experience I distinctly remember first learning about the Emmett Till story and that was through oral history from the younger cousin that Wheeler Parker just mentioned Simeon Wright that oral history uh, aired on C-SPAN back in 2011 I know you've included that in the, uh, the lesson as well Pam. Uh, But for me, that initial story that Wheeler Parker just shared about the cousins uh, being in town together having fun, that resonated with me as I thought back to my own teenage years in situations that weren't much different to those he described of boys really being boys. And uh, while nothing remotely as horrific as what happened to Emmett Till, I too remember seeing excessive punishment and discrimination against some of my Aboriginal friends and peers uh, growing up in rural northern Australia.
1: Following up on that, Craig, people can make their own connections to the story, I think, based on where they live and their own personal experiences. I just think of the three of us, and we have very different backgrounds. You growing up in Australia, Zach, you're from Ohio and having spent the last seven years in South Carolina, and me growing up in Queens, just outside of New York City. So it makes me wonder, how can this story be taught in the classroom at different age levels today? And so I think it can be linked with local history that students can explore in their communities. For example, in this lesson, we feature a clip of Mississippi high school teacher Jermaine Hampton, who has students create a project on the significance of the Emmett Till story by linking it with a current issue that is being debated. So teachers can check out that lesson on our website when we publish it. And in this lesson, we also feature a clip of Smithsonian Institution Secretary Lonnie Bunch talking about how the exhibit impacted him, what we can learn from it, and how museums can play a role in educating the public. And prior to becoming Secretary of the Smithsonian, Mr. Bunch served as the founding director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture in D.C., and along with his curators had to make difficult decisions about which artifacts to use in telling the story of African Americans throughout history, including the use of Emmett Till's casket in the exhibit. So in considering the legacy of Emmett Till and his family, the impact it continues to have, and the connections that can be made today, our team reached out to Secretary Bunch to seek his perspective on the story of Emmett Till. And here is what he had to say.
3: I'm Lonnie Bunch, the secretary of the Smithsonian Institution. And there are so many lessons that we learn from the life and the tragic death of Emmett Till. We learn his stories of resiliency, of collaboration, of hope. But maybe what we learn more than anything else is that changing a nation, helping a nation live up to its stated ideal is not without loss or tragedy. And it's also the change comes because of brave women like Mamie Till Mobley, who used the saddest moment of her life to make sure her son didn't die in vain and use his death to help transform a nation, to reinvigorate the civil rights movement. So in many ways, the lesson we learn is out of this unbelievable, painful loss, came the strength of a woman to demand a nation look at itself and be made better when it comes to issues of race and fairness. So the lesson is never to give up,
2: but to realize that the struggle is not without cost. Uh, We want to thank Secretary Bunch for taking the time to share his thoughts on the legacy and how we remember the story of Emmett Till today. Also, want to recognize him as our first guest on the podcast. Just as a reminder to our listeners, Pam's lesson plan about the Emmett Till story and the video clip we just shared from Secretary Bunch can be found on our featured resources site if you want to use those in your classroom.
0: And thanks, Craig and Pam. Uh, Shifting gears to a political topic from this past year. My section of this episode will focus on congressional and state redistricting and the constitutionally required decennial census. Here's C-SPAN host Peter Slynn discussing the 2020 census.
5: Well, currently there are about 334 million people living in the United States. That's according to the 2020 census figures. They are represented in Congress by two senators from each of the 50 states and 435 members of Congress. That 435 number has been set by law since 1929. Now with the new census figures out, which take into account the population growth in the United States and geographical and demographical changes as well, the every 10-year congressional redistricting will start. The new districts will be in place for the 2022 mid-year elections. Some states have lost members of Congress. New York and Pennsylvania are two while some,
0: like Texas and Florida, gained new members. We just heard from Peter Slan about the bare-bones context of the census and of redistricting. In preparing for this episode, I thought back to my high school and college years growing up in Ohio. An ongoing partisan debate in the Buckeye State centers on its processes and procedures for congressional and state redistricting after each census. Throughout those years growing up, various news outlets would cover the issue with one political slant or another, It was often difficult for me as a high school student to determine who was right and who was wrong or who was telling the truth and who wasn't. I'd always learned about the concept of gerrymandering districts to favor one party or another. In fact, I also taught about that uh, gerrymandering concept when I was teaching in South Carolina. And the Ohio Ninth district, where my aunt lives, was always the poster child for this type of effort. Dubbed, quote, the snake by the lake, by the Toledo Blade newspaper, this district runs along Lake Erie with its two halves only connected by one bridge. In fact, some critics say that the district is actually split in half during a large rainstorm when it floods. Needless to say, my personal background and experiences piqued my interest in this ongoing process for 2022, including how states have a different array of uh, methods and the roles of the federal and state governments in these decisions. Since starting working here at C-SPAN September, I've had the opportunity to view several clips of Dave Wasserman from the Cook Political Report. He closely studies redistricting efforts and policies across each of the 50 states. Let's now hear from him about who gets to make the decisions for this cycle's new maps. The more important part of this is going to be how lines are
5: drawn from state to state. And Republicans get to draw the maps in, uh, in 20 states totaling 187 districts. Uh, that's because uh, state legislatures, for the most part, are the ones who bear responsibility for this, compared to 75 districts in eight states that Democrats control. So Republicans get to draw uh, more than twice as many districts as Democrats. There are also 10 states that use independent or bipartisan commissions that total 121 districts. There are six states with control that's split between uh, the legislature of one party and a governor of the other. And so uh, that adds up to, to 46 Districts, And then there are six states that only have one district in this upcoming decade and don't need to divide their states into multiple seats.
0: In this introductory clip, Mr. Wasserman describes the array of decision making controls for redistricting, which varies state by state. And while states have control over their redistricting policies, the National Conference of State Legislatures, or NCSL, states that uh, states must meet certain obligations in their new maps, such as compactness for each district, the preservation of counties and other political subdivisions, and avoiding pairing uh, current incumbents in a new district.
1: You know, you remind me, Zach, of an article that I read recently about the redistricting process in the state of Maryland, where I now live. It talked about how the governor, through executive order, appointed a special nonpartisan citizen redistricting commission to develop a new map, while lawmakers were creating their own commission and maps. So it went on to talk about gerrymandering as they examine boundaries and the impact this could have on elected officials. And it could potentially make its way to the Maryland Court of Appeals, which could take action on the map that is approved. So we'll just have to see how this all shakes out.
2: Yeah, for some international comparison, Australia, we have a much smaller population and we hold our census every five years. But our redistricting is handled by a single independent and nonpartisan authority at the federal level called the Australian Electoral Commission. So the AEC, they oversee the appointment and redistribution process as dictated by shifting populations in any given state. Uh, And redistricting is really not seen as a controversial issue in Australia. The commission is made up of uh, full-time employees who must remain impartial during their employment. And the commission itself is also held accountable by several committees in the Australian Parliament that provide oversight of their work.
0: Thanks for sharing, Pam and Craig. Um, As you guys can see, um, all of our listeners out there, this process varies so much across each state and even across each country across the world as well. And as each state controls its respective approval process, we know that one political party will undoubtedly benefit from any change here in the United States. So I think that the Wasserman clip also lends itself to generating conversation regarding somewhat of a comprehensive question which political party or parties may benefit from this current redistricting process and why. Specifically, I think students could view the requirements for redistricting from NCSL and compare their own state's policies. Uh, And in the last clip, Wasserman also goes on to state that six states are gaining congressional representation, Texas is gaining two seats, while seven states are each losing one member of Congress. In the lesson I developed, How States Redistrict, the Case of 2022, students explore several of these states via choice board activity. The lesson asks students to consider different factors like population growth and shifts in each state, what role the people or independent commissions, as you mentioned, Pam, have in the process, and what is the chance that it's going to end up uh, in the judicial branch in the courts. Or, if a student lives in a state that is gaining or losing a seat, they could compare their state's current maps and proposed maps with the NCSL criteria as a framework for comparison. This lesson is also supplemented with several articles that students refer to throughout as they reflect on the culminating questions. Number one, do states effectively ensure the principle of one person, one vote? And number two, how could the redistricting process be improved? With that latter question in mind, a potential extension activity is a new C-SPAN classroom deliberation entitled, Should the Federal Government Regulate States' Election Procedures? This deliberation explores the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which required certain states with a history of voter discrimination to have any proposed changes to their voting systems pre-cleared with the federal government. However, as we'll hear from Ben Williams of the NCSL, this standard changed in 2013. Shelby County
5: versus Holder was a decision by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2013 that said that the formula that determines which states and cities and counties in the United States are subject to what is known as Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which uh, had what was called the preclearance regime. Essentially, what it meant was these states that had, uh, or localities, that according to this formula had a history of discrimination in voting on the basis of race, would have to pre-clear or pre-approve any changes they made to their election laws, which included redistricting plans, with the United States Department of Justice. In Shelby County, the U.S. Supreme Court said that that coverage formula, which was written in 1965 and hadn't been changed since then, was not tailored to current circumstances, and therefore it was struck down. Congress could reauthorize Section 5 by creating a new coverage formula, But as we stand today, Section 5 is the valid law of the land, but it applies to zero jurisdictions. And that's one of the biggest changes from the past cycle to this cycle is that this will be the first redistricting cycle where Section 5 was not in effect uh, since uh, redistricting came into the modern age in the 1960s.
0: So as we heard in the clip, due to the outcome of Shelby County v. Holder, this redistricting cycle is the first in which the federal government cannot act on its legislated preclearance responsibility. This clip begins a longer deliberation that has students explore should the federal government have the right or the opportunity to regulate individual states' practices. From there, I think students are empowered to interview voters to learn more about the issue, or they could write a letter to the uh, editor of a local newspaper about their perspective, or they could even contact their current congressional or state representative with their thoughts. While many of our students may not yet be able to vote, they should be empowered to speak up and speak out with a well-constructed argument, as this is the hallmark of civic engagement.
2: Oh, well, I'm going to pick up on that thread, Zach. And speaking of speak up and speak out, I've chosen to highlight a topic that we always hear as popular as students, and that's free speech, or more specifically, limits to free speech. So C-SPAN Classroom, we've got a number of terrific lessons on the topic. One in particular uh, that was developed this year focuses on student free speech and looks at decisions in key sp- Supreme Court cases over the years, uh, including Tinker, Bethel, Hazelwood, Morse v. Frederick and last year's case about the off-campus use of social media and student-free speech. So the the first clip I'm going to play, I'm actually going to play a portion that could be used as an introduction or possibly even as an extension when discussing the greater concepts of community and uh, personal freedoms within a society, how those two concepts don't always coexist uh, easily. This particular clip's from a discussion between Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer David Marinus and another author whose books I personally enjoy, Sebastian Younger.
6: When you're part of a society and you're relying on a society, when you're obeying the stop signs, right? Because you're part of a convention that has that you stop at a stop sign and a red light. And in this country, you drive on the right hand side of the road, not the left-hand side of the road. Those are conventions that keep everyone safe. They're regulations that keep everyone safe. And you don't have the freedom to say, you know what, I just like the left hand side of the road better. I'm going to drive on that side. That's not part of your what you would, what some people will call your freedom. Um, It's not one of your rights. And so if you're part of the society and you're depending on it to keep you safe and healthy and alive, you have to then return the favor. And so those rights, you can debate them. uh, You can debate them in public. You can challenge them in court. You can try to pass laws or or undo laws, um, but you actually don't have the right to give yourself rights. And, And that's where I think people who misuse the word freedom air terribly in using what's basically a sacred word.
2: So we often hear from teachers about how some of their favorite lessons center on the five guaranteed freedoms that the First Amendment protects, speech, religion, press, assembly, and the right to petition the government. I feel like a clip like this, which centers on how personal freedoms don't always overrule or supersede societal conventions, could be used to enhance understanding on really any of those topics. So the point that he makes at the end about Americans having the right to debate policy or laws in public or to challenge those laws in court, or to use the legislative process to introduce new laws, it helps to compound the understanding for students that each of us, as part of a society, do not have the right to just give ourselves new rights as we see fit, or as we feel in any particular circumstances they may dictate. Uh, Another concept that we often hear that students struggle with is how the First Amendment only prohibits the government and its actors from restricting those stated rights, but it doesn't necessarily apply to private businesses and organisations. Students can explore further examples around the First Amendment on our Constitution Clips page on C-SPAN Classroom, and they can compare those protections to recent events, changes in policies that were enacted during the pandemic, and to ongoing petitions in assembly for social causes. For the final clip, I'm going to continue on the theme of societal limits to personal freedoms, and this clip is from author Daryl West as he looks at legal precedent for limits to free speech, and he goes on to discuss government regulation or proposed government regulation of user content on the platforms of private social media companies like Facebook and Twitter?
7: I do worry a little bit about large private companies making decisions of that sort, uh, because there are very complicated questions of clearly we don't want tech platforms to incite violence, uh, promote uh, hate speech, uh, or engage in other uh, objectionable uh, activities like that. But yet in the United States, we also have freedom of speech and freedom of expression. So, you know, how you balance those things is a very tricky legal issue. I think as a society, I would actually be more comfortable with us uh, in the form of the government passing laws to uh, uh, that would apply to those types of decisions, as opposed to a private company unilaterally uh, making uh, that type of uh, decision. That would worry me a little bit. You know, we actually have mediated those types of disputes in the bricks and mortar world. You know, there have been many legal cases in terms of freedom of speech and, you know, not being able, not being allowed to you know, fire in a crowded theater. Like, there are restrictions that basically we as a society have imposed. We need to start thinking about the applicability of those legal precedents to the digital world, digital platforms, the digital economy in general. Because there, there are all sorts of new legal issues that are popping up through digital technology that the current laws don't really adequately address. So I personally would be more comfortable if we resolve these issues through policies, laws, and regulations, as opposed to just having private companies make the decisions. And, you know, maybe they'll make a decision you agree with, or maybe they uh, would make a decision you would disagree with.
1: Thanks for sharing that, Craig. In this last clip, maybe think of another new resource that we have in the C-SPAN Classroom Library. A few weeks ago, the executives of YouTube, Snapchat, Instagram, and TikTok testified about their work to keep kids safe on social media. So your students could explore the child safety and social media bell ringer that we have and broaden the conversation to discuss whether the burden for regulation should fall on organizations or be extended to governmental policy, like Mr. West mentions.
0: This week's episode explored some of our favorite resources that our team and the Greater C-SPAN Teacher Network developed in 2021. We hope that you have a wonderful holiday season and a well-deserved rest as you gear up for all that 2022 promises to offer. In the meantime, we encourage you to check out all of our resources from this past year at C-SPAN Classroom, and we hope that they make your teaching endeavors just a little bit
2: easier. Just as a final reminder, you can access all of the programs and teacher resources that we shared today on our podcast page at cspan.org slash classroom. And if you'd like to connect with our team, please email us anytime at educate at c-span.org.
1: That's it for this week. Looking ahead to next year, January 15th marks the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. Join us for our next episode when we explore the life, death, and legacy of this historic figure. Until then, thanks for joining us.